Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor of Providence. And today we are speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Tyson Wetzel, who is the 2021-22 Senior U.S. Fellow at the Atlantic Council's Snowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. And as a disclaimer, his comments today are his own views and do not reflect the official position of the U.S. Air Force or the Department of Defense. So, Tyson, thanks for joining us today. Mark, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. And today we are going to be talking about Ukraine and some of the escalatory options that the U.S. has or different military options or ways that we could help Ukraine and military equipment we could give them and some other aspects of the war. And uh, so my first question is about a strategic risk calculator that the Atlantic Council created recently. I think you published it maybe last week. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, and one other thing for listeners, uh, we will link to some of these reports on the podcast notes. And also this is being recorded on March 21st since the situation can change. But back to the risk calculator here. So what is it and what did it find? Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. So uh, I've been a little bit, shall we say, frustrated by some of the conversation in um, on on the news press, the media, et cetera, about expanded U.S. options. It's very easy to say the U.S. should do more. And who, watching President Zelensky in that video that he showed in front of Congress, uh, or seeing some of the horrific killing that is going on in Kiev and other cities throughout Ukraine, doesn't want to do more. However, I. What I didn't see a whole lot of is, is nuanced conversation of what can the United States do uh, that is unlikely to lead to a Russia-NATO war, which none of us want, but would help Ukraine hold out for longer and hopefully continue to have effectiveness on the battlefield. So that was kind of the genesis of the idea. And then my, my boss here, Barry Pavel, and I came up with an idea of doing a survey for uh, national security professionals. Many are with us here at the Atlantic Council. Some are kind of in our orbit, work at other think tanks, retired government officials, et cetera. And we sent out this survey. We ended up getting 37 respondents, and we looked at a baker's dozen, 13 options for expanded uh, U.S. military action in Ukraine. They went all the way from humanitarian operations on the ground through more military transfer of equipment. Uh, through small boots on the ground, if you will, special operations actions, things like that in the no-fly zone. And we just asked a couple of questions in these surveys, and it was, you know, what is the, the risk and what is the reward? So what would the benefit of these individual options be to Ukraine to help them hold out against Russia? And what is the risk of implementing these, uh, you know, these options to expanding to a greater NATO-Russia war? In this paper, we ended up calling it the strategic risk calculator. We look at the risk versus reward and then try to come out with net positive uh, options. So what is unlikely to risk wider war, but would be helpful for Ukraine on the ground? And that's, that's the paper in a nutshell is trying to evaluate options uh, and looking at what risk these, these options would run. And so what are some of the different options that would be the best and worst depending upon the risk of escalation and effectiveness? So generally, uh, the, the things that, that polled well, if you will, or surveyed well, were expanded military equipment transfers to Ukraine. And the way the respondents kind of looked at it was, we sort of already crossed the Rubicon of lethal aid. We've sent 
hundreds of millions of dollars of Stinger, you know, shoulder-fired anti- uh, um, air defense weapons, Javelin, shoulder-fired anti-tank weapons. We've already sent those. Um, the equipment we're sending is causing Russian deaths on the ground. If Russia hasn't reacted yet, then similar types of things could probably be done without risking a wider war. And the things that pulled really well in particular would be uh, expanded um, uh, unmanned aerial vehicle or drones being sent to Ukraine, expanded deliveries of air defense systems, and expanded uh, counterfire, so counter-battery radar, things to find uh, those, those uh, pieces of artillery and rockets that are doing the indiscriminate killing in the cities. Those were really net positive, likely to have an effect on the battlefield, unlikely to risk a wider war. The things that, that pulled not as well uh, would be those things that have a much greater risk, kind of the juice is not worth the squeeze, if you will. And anything that put U.S. boots on the ground or pilots in the air are the things that really did not pull as well. So we had a few options, even small scale cyber attacks uh, did not uh, pull very well or did not survey very well. Special operations, and we looked at a couple of different options in special operations. Some would be in an advised mission. Uh, most of our respondents thought that sounded a little bit like Vietnam. Uh, and there would be mission creep and, and having American boots on the ground, not a good idea, all the way up through the no-fly zone. And I did find it interesting. All 37 respondents uh, found the no-fly zone as highly likely uh, to risk uh, or, or highly likely risk of escalation to U.S.-NATO conflict. Now, we didn't look at a limited no-fly zone, which has gotten a little bit more um, more discussion over the last couple of weeks, but we looked at a no-fly zone over the Capitol, and all 37 respondents uh, said that was likely to risk a shooting war between NATO and Russia. And I know that after Zelensky's speech last week, the administration released a list of different things that they are giving, or they will give to Ukraine. I'm not sure of the timeline on delivery, but... Were some of the stuff you talked about in this survey included in what we're being or what we will send now? Absolutely. So the 800 million that was approved, uh, I believe, it was right the night before Zelensky spoke, uh, includes things like more javelins and stingers. Uh, we would be hugely in favor of that, or the respondents were in favor of that. There is also a line item in there for tactical UASs or unmanned aerial systems. Didn't say the type, but that could be kamikaze or suicide drones, these small drones or quadcopters that carry very small explosive uh, charges that can be used to take out armor, artillery, things like that. So we're already doing, even post us publishing this this document about 10 days ago, uh, we've already done some of the things that our respondents found would be helpful for the Ukrainians. I do believe there is still still room to go. We And this war doesn't look like it's going anywhere uh, anytime soon. It looks like it's getting pretty close to stalemate. So we need to continue getting uh, this, this equipment into Ukrainian hands if, if we want them to continue to hold out. So how has Western support helped Ukraine already? Like you said, like we're in a stalemate. Well, so let, let me take this as, as kind of two parts of this question. Um, how have we, uh, let me start with the, the, how has Western support helped Ukraine? I mean, in a word, Significantly, it's been it's been really effective. So U.S. and NATO equipment has had a big impact on the battlefield. In particular, the Javelin and the the British equivalent, the NLAW, it's called. These are anti tank guided missiles. They've been devastating to Russian armor. Now, 
Russia hasn't employed particularly well. They've made it easy on the Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians have been excellent in their ability to take out uh, armor. A lot of that is with uh, U.S. and British equipment. Uh, Turkey, one of our NATO partners, has sent uh, their most advanced unmanned aerial vehicle, or at least that they're selling, the TB2 by Rockstar. That thing has been a game changer. It's been developing battlefield intelligence, delivering precise weapons. It's been destroying a bunch of Russian armor and air defense systems. That's been incredibly helpful. The Stinger has been destroying Russian aircraft and helicopters. You know, I've been looking at their loss rates, even at the most conservative estimate on Russian losses, all, only those that have been confirmed by video and, uh, and photograph of downed aircraft. Through three and a half weeks, they've already lost more aircraft than they did in any month of their disastrous Afghanistan campaign. That's, that's amazing. And Stinger has been a big part of that. Now, less measurable, but I think helpful, has been U.S. and NATO training and, and about a week ago, actually, Russia hit a training base along the border with Poland that had been used by U.S. and NATO forces as part of the training mission in Ukraine prior to the conflict. Ukraine's got a very professional force, and they were kind of shocked into it in 2014. So how much is their proficiency based on U.S. and NATO? I don't want to take too much credit. I think that would be hubris. I do think U.S. and NATO training has helped. But... But there are immeasurables on the battlefield that almost always is what turns wars. And those immeasurables would be things like strategic guidance from the top, strong civilian and military leadership, uh, and belief in the jointness of a cause or morale of forces. All of those big advantages for Ukraine. They've had great leadership from President Zelensky on down. They have a real strong cause. It is to protect their homeland. They are really well led on the battlefield, and, and they have a high level of morale. Russia's having none of that. Um, so we are seeing Ukraine uh, kind of be more effective than we thought and Russia being a lot less effective. Some of that to do with NATO. Um, but I, I think uh, our equipment has been what has really been helpful in the battlefield. And while you were talking, I was thinking, uh, I don't know if you could speak to this, but does Ukraine have the ability of producing a lot of its own equipment that would be effective? I thought that Ukraine had a legacy of producing a lot of, especially in the Soviet era, um, advanced military equipment. Like, do they have the ability to have these, you know, create missiles and such? Uh, some of them they do. Uh, in particular, their multiple launch rocket systems, MLRSs, they built their own version of an old Soviet uh, system. So these, these rocket launchers have been very effective. What I can't tell you, because I, I just don't know, is how much the bombardment that they've been undergoing has been able to reduce their their output or their ability to develop things like rockets and missiles and artillery. Uh, it does, at least open press reporting I saw over the weekend, seem to indicate that Russia was starting to target some of their, their military uh, production facilities. I haven't seen any uh, evidence one way or the other to say whether or not they've been effective. So Prior to the war, Ukraine was very good at building at least some of the equipment they need, not all of it. Air defense equipment is one area that they don't build their own stuff. Um, unmanned aerial vehicles, another area they don't build their own stuff, and that's why they need to bring it in, and that's where NATO has been helpful so far. Over the weekend, Russia launched a hypersonic missile in Ukraine that, according to reports, could be used to carry a nuclear warhead. So why are these weapons important and especially their use in Ukraine? And does the U.S. have anything that could respond to this threat? So hypersonics are, um, they're so hot right now. Uh, everybody wants to be in the hypersonic game. In terms of the world leaders in the development of hypersonic weapons, it would be China, 
Russia and the United States. Now, what we saw over the weekend, I think, is probably the first operational use uh, or firing in anger of a hypersonic weapon delivered from an aircraft, uh, the, the Kinzhal missile. That said, it is sort of the, the easiest way they could have made a hypersonic weapon work. They used a ground-based uh, missile, which is known as the Iskander. They put it on, on one of their fighters and they launch it off. So th- I would say they definitely fall behind the Chinese in terms of development of hypersonic weapons. The Chinese have, have tested some very effective and, and surprising hypersonic weapons. The U.S. has invested a lot, especially in recent years, in closing the hypersonic gap. Uh, we, we still do not have, as of uh, 21 March, we do not have an operational hypersonic weapon. The problem with hypersonics is it's really tough to defend against a missile that is going Mach 10. Uh, so theoretically, a hypersonic missile could be a game changer on the battlefield. That said, Russia doesn't have a whole lot of them. And that's certainly not, I don't believe, why they launched the weapon. I do think they're, they're getting a little bit low on their missiles, but I think this is a lot more about signaling to the United States and NATO. We've been seeing more threats, um, and, and some of them a lot less subtle than others, that if you continue to resupply Ukraine, if you continue to wade into the deep end of the pool, uh, we, we've got these nuclear weapons and we're not afraid to use them. We're certainly a lot less afraid than the U.S. and its NATO partners are. Um, and we've seen that through like the attack I mentioned on that uh, on that training ground near Poland. I think that is an indicator that, hey, we can hit anywhere in the country. There's been attacks on Lviv. If you guys get involved in the West, you know, or in the western part of Ukraine, we can get there. Uh, Lavrov has said that uh, that expanded um, support from NATO will be seen as as a, an act of war. And then I think the launching of this Kinzhal um, hypersonic weapon which does have the ability, at least postulated, to carry a a small nuclear weapon is another way of saying, look, we can launch this from Russian airspace and we can hit virtually any NATO country. You know, maybe maybe you want to think twice before getting into a conflict uh, here on the ground with us because we've got weapons to to reach out and touch you. I think that's a lot more um, what it's about. I don't think the Kinzhal missile is going to have any noticeable effect uh, one way or the other on the battlefield in Ukraine. Another issue that's been in the news lately in relation to the conflict is possible Chinese support for Russia. And it's kind of interesting trying to read the uh, tea leaves on this because on the one hand, China, you know, they don't want to alienate their relationship with Europe, but they also strategically are aligned with Russia. And so what could China do to help Russia? Is it mo- could they give them military equipment or is it mostly financial aid? And uh, like, wh- how could the West respond to uh, the possibility of China getting dragged into the conflict somehow? Well, so great power competition makes some strange bedfellows. Um, Russia and China have a lot of things in their background that, that make them very leery of each other, but they look at the U.S. as uh, they neither wants a unipolar world, and so anything that knocks the U.S. down a peg or two is good for both of them. So their um, their objectives are aligned in some ways. What I think China so so let's start with military equipment. Could China give Russia military equipment, more fighters, more uh, more precision guided munitions? Yes, they could. I think that's unlikely. I think what China wants to do is kind of keep the status quo right now. Russia bogged down, the US really focused on NATO and Europe, 
with the subtext being not as focused on East Asia, which is good for China. So I think what they're going to do is supply and economic support to Russia to keep them in this fight and keep the U.S. and NATO focused east as opposed to the U.S. focusing west into the Pacific. So I think, um, you know, buy more oil, do some things to offset the sanctions. They've been really aggressive about saying these sanctions are virtually an act of war. That to me is signaling we're going to help economically if they do provide military equipment. I think what you're looking at is is like the, the, the three B's, beans, bullets, and buying stuff. Uh, so, you know, supply of food, supply of small caliber ammunition, things like that I could see, and then buying oil, natural gas, whatever they can to help offset uh, some of the Western sanctions, keep Russia in the fight, and thus keep the U.S. focused on that fight. You kind of mentioned earlier that um, some comments by Lavrov, but you know, the idea of like expanding the war or um, threatening other countries. But what are what's the probability of a wider war? And what are some of the preparations for that? So I would say right now, I don't think the risk of a NATO US war is high. And the reason I say this is first off, I don't want anybody to, to misinterpret my what I'm about to say here. I don't trust Putin as far as I can throw him. He is a gambler. He hates the West. And he hates the things that the West represents, democracy, free markets, etc. However, just operationally, he doesn't have a whole lot to throw at a NATO conflict. Uh, I've seen estimates of anywhere between 50 and 60 percent of his combat forces were dedicated to this fight and they're being bled white. It's not like they're going to have a whole lot of opportunity to go beyond Ukraine into Poland or to try and take the Baltics. I think that's unlikely. I, I do also think that if we push too far, he is going, he has a different risk calculus than we do in the West. And the things that concern me would be things like the use of a tactical or battlefield nuclear weapon. I still think that's unlikely in the short term. That's where I think, and, and if you look at going back to the survey that Barry and I published, is we're, I think right now, uh, kind of threading the needle in the right way. We're keeping Ukraine in the fight. We're giving them equipment. Uh, we're, we're hopefully leading them to a position where they can continue taking the fight to the Russians and win and not starting a war between Russia and NATO. And that's probably a good thing. Um, not probably. That is, a, that is absolutely a good thing. Now, what I will say here is there's Things can always change. So uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, and I don't claim to be a big fan of Secretary Rumsfeld in any way, used to say the unknown unknowns. We here at the Atlantic Council like to call those things snow leopards. We know they're out there, but it's really, really difficult to ever catch them in the wild or see them. There are some of these things that could change the decision calculation. If uh, Putin were to kidnap or kill Zelensky, if there were a a Zimmerman telegram type of thing where you see Russia and China working together uh, against us, a mass casualty event that's just so horrific it shocks the American consciousness, the use of chemical weapons, um, or a, a coup d'etat in Russia that actually puts somebody that's even more hardline than Putin. Some of those things could change the decision calculus of the administration. Maybe they're willing to take more risk of other NATO capitals. But I'd say right now, as of March 21st, I think the risk of NATO-Russia conflict is relatively limited, and that's probably a good thing. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Wetzel, thank you so much for joining us on the Profcast today. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It has been a pleasure, and I really appreciate it. 